The following is from The Treasury of David by Charles Spurgeon on Psalm 7. O Lord my God, in Thee do I put my trust. Save me from all them that persecute me and deliver me, lest he tear my soul like a lion rending it in pieces, while there is none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there be iniquity in my hands, if I have rewarded evil unto him that was at peace with me, yea, I have delivered him that without cause is mine enemy. Let the enemy persecute my soul and take it. Yea, let him tread down my life upon the earth and lay mine honor in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in thine anger. Lift up thyself because of the rage of mine enemies and awake for me to the judgment that thou hast commanded. So shall the congregation of the people compass thee about. For their sakes, therefore, return thou on high. The Lord shall judge the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, and according to mine integrity that is in me. I'll let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God trieth the hearts and reins. My defense is of God, which saveth the upright in heart. God judges the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he turn not, he will wet his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for him the instruments of death. He ordaineth his arrows against the persecutors. Behold, he travelleth with iniquity, and has conceived mischief, and brought forth falsehood. He made a pit and digged it, and has fallen into the ditch which he made. His mischief shall return upon his own head, and his violent dealing shall come down upon his own pate. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness, and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. The title, Shigeon of David, which he sang unto the Lord concerning the word of Cush the Benjamite. As far as we can gather from the observations of learned men and from a comparison of the psalm with the only other Shigeon in the word of God, Habakkuk 3 verse 1, this title seems to mean variable songs, with which also the idea of solace and pleasure is associated. Truly our life psalm is composed of variable verses. One stanza rolls along with a sublime meter of triumph, but another limps with a broken rhythm of complaint. There is much bass in the saint's music here below. Our experience is as variable as the weather in England. From the title we learn the occasion of the composition of this song. It appears probable that Cush the Benjamite had accused David to Saul of treasonable conspiracy against his royal authority. This the king would be ready enough to credit, both from his jealousy of David and from the relation which most probably existed between himself, the son of Kish, and his Cush, or Kish the Benjamite. He who is near to the throne can do more injury to a subject than an ordinary slanderer. This may be called a song of the slandered saint. What a blessing it would be if we could turn even the most disastrous event into a theme for song. And so turn the tables upon our great enemy. Let us learn a lesson from Luther, who once said, David made psalms, we also will make psalms, and sing them as well as we can to the honor of our Lord, and a spite and mock the devil.
division. In the first and second verses, the danger is stated and prayer offered. Then the psalmist most solemnly avows his innocence. Verses 3 to 5. The Lord is pleaded with to arise to judgment 6 and 7. The Lord sitting upon his throne hears the renewed appeal of the slandered supplicant 8 and 9. The Lord clears his servant and threatens the wicked verses 10 to 13. The slanderer is seen in vision bringing a curse upon his own head 14 to 16 while David retires from trial singing a hymn of praise to his righteous God. We have here a noble sermon upon that text. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that rises against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. Exposition Verse 1 David appears before God to plead with him against the accuser, who had charged him with treason and treachery. The case is here opened with an avowal of confidence in God, Whatever may be the emergency of our condition, we shall never find it amiss to retain our reliance upon our God. O Lord my God, mine by a special covenant sealed by Jesus' blood, and ratified in my own soul by a sense of union to Thee, in Thee and in Thee only do I put my trust. Even now in my sore distress I shake, but my rock moves not. It is never right to distrust God, and never vain to trust Him. And now with both divine relationship and holy trust to strengthen Him, David utters a burden of his desire. Save me from all them that persecute me. His pursuers were very many, and any one of them cruel enough to devour him. He cries, therefore, for salvation from them all. We should never think our prayers complete until we ask for preservation from all sin and all enemies, and deliver me, extricate me from their snares, acquit me of their accusations, give a true and just deliverance in this trial of my injured character. See how clearly his case is stated. Let us see to it that we know what we would have when we are come to the throne of mercy. Pause a little while before you pray that you may not offer the sacrifice of fools. Get a distinct idea of your need, and then you can pray with the more fluency of fervency. Verse 2. Lest he tear my soul. Here is a plea of fear co-working with the plea of faith. There was one among David's foes, my year, then the rest, who had both dignity, strength, and ferocity, and was therefore like a lion, from this foe he urgently seeks deliverance. Perhaps this was Saul, his royal enemy. But in our own case, there is one who goes about like a lion, seeking whom he may devour, concerning whom we should ever cry, deliver us from the evil one. Notice the vigor of the description, rending it in pieces while there is none to deliver. It is a picture from the shepherd life of David when the fierce lion had pounced upon the defenseless lamb and had made it his prey, he would rend the victim in pieces, break all the bones and devour all because no shepherd was near to protect the lamb or rescue it from the ravenous beast. This is a soul-moving portrait of a saint delivered over to the will of Satan. This will make the bowels of Jehovah yearn. 
A father cannot be silent when a child is in such peril. No, he will not endure the thought of his darling in the jaws of a lion. He will arise and deliver his persecuted one. Our God is very pitiful and will surely rescue his people from so desperate a destruction. It will be well for us here to remember that this is a description of the danger to which the psalmist was exposed from slanderous tongues. Verily, this is not an overdrawn picture, for the wounds of a sword will heal, but the wounds of the tongue cut deeper than the flesh, and are not soon cured. Slander leaves a slur, even if it be wholly disproved. Common fame, although notoriously a common liar, has very many believers. Once let an ill word get into men's mouths, and it is not easy to get it fully out again. The Italians say that good repute is like the cypress. Once cut it, never puts forth leaf again. This is not true if our character be cut by a stranger's hand, but even then it will not soon regain its former verdure. Oh, it is meanness most detestable to stab a good man in his reputation. But diabolical hatred observes no nobility in its mode of warfare. We must be ready for this trial, for it will surely come upon us. If God was slandered in Eden, we shall surely be maligned in this land of sinners. Gird up your loins, ye children of the resurrection, for this fiery trial awaits you all. Verses 3 to 5. The second part of this wandering hymn contains a protestation of innocence and an invocation of wrath upon his own head if he were not clear from the evil imputed to him. So far from hiding treasonable intentions in his hands, or ungratefully requiting the peaceful deeds of a friend, he had even suffered his enemy to escape when he hid him completely in his power. Twice had he spared Saul's life once in the cave of Adullam, and again when he found him sleeping in the midst of his slumbering camp. He could, therefore, with a clear conscience, make his appeal to heaven. He needs not fear the curse whose soul is clear of guilt. Yet is the imprecation a most solemn one, and only justifiable through the extremity of the occasion, and the nature of the dispensation under which the psalmist lived. We are commanded by our Lord Jesus to let our yea be yea, and our nay Nay, for whatsoever is more than this cometh of evil. If we cannot be believed on our word, we are surely not to be trusted on our oath. For to a true Christian, a simple word is as binding as another man's oath. Especially beware, O unconverted men, of trifling with solemn imprecations. Remember the woman at Deveses, who wished she might die if she had not paid her share in a joint purchase, and who fell dead there, and then with the money in her hand. Selah. David enhances the solemnity of this appeal to the dread tribunal of God by the use of the usual pause. From these verses we may learn that no innocence can shield a man from the calumnies of the wicked. David had been scrupulously careful to avoid any appearance of rebellion against Saul, whom he constantly styled the Lord's anointed. But all this could not protect him from lying tongues. As the shadow follows the substance, so envy pursues goodness. It is only at the tree laden with fruit that men throw stones. If we would live without being slandered, we must wait till we get to heaven. 
Let us be very heedful not to believe the flying rumors which are always harassing gracious men. If there are no believers in lies, there will be but a dull market in falsehood, and good men's characters will be safe. Ill will never spoke well. Sinners have an ill will to saints, and therefore be sure they will not speak well of them. Verse 6 We now listen to a fresh prayer based upon the avowal which he has just made. We cannot pray too often, and when our heart is true, we shall turn to God in prayer as naturally as a needle to its pole. Arise, O Lord, in thine anger. His sorrow makes him view the Lord as a judge who had left the judgment seat and retired into his rest. Faith would move the Lord to avenge the quarrel of his saints. Lift up thyself because of the rage of mine enemies. A still stronger figure to express his anxiety that the Lord would assume his authority and mount the throne. Stand up, O God, rise thou above them all, and let thy justice tower above their villainies. Await for me to the judgment that thou hast commanded. This is a bolder utterance still, for it implies sleep as well as inactivity, and can only be applied to God in a very limited sense. He never slumbers, yet doth he often seem to do so, for the wicked prevail, and the saints are trodden in the dust. God's silence is a patience of long-suffering, and if wearisome to the saints, they should bear it cheerfully in the hope that sinners may thereby be led to repentance. Verse 7 So shall the congregation of the people compass thee about. Thy saints shall crowd to thy tribunal with their complaints, or shall surround it with their solemn homage. For their sakes, therefore, return thou on high, as when a judge travels at the asses is. All men take their cases to his court, that they may be heard. So will the righteous gather to their Lord. Here he fortifies himself in prayer by pleading, that if the Lord will mount the throne of judgment, multitudes of the saints would be blessed as well as himself. If I be too base to be remembered, yet for their sakes... For the love thou bearest to thy chosen people, come forth from thy secret pavilion and sit in the gate, dispensing justice among the people. When my suit includes the desires of all the righteous, it shall surely speed. For shall not God avenge his own elect? Verse 8 If I am not mistaken, David has now seen in the eye of his mind the Lord ascending to his judgment seat and beholding him seated there in royal state. He draws near to him to urge his suit anew. In the last two verses he besought Jehovah to arise, and now that he is arisen he prepares to mingle with the congregation of the people who compass the Lord about. The royal heralds proclaim the opening of the court with the solemn words, The Lord shall judge the people. Our petitioner rises at once and cries with earnestness and humility, Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, and according to mine integrity that is in me. His hand is on an honest heart, and his cry is to a righteous judge. Verse 9 He sees a smile of complacency upon the face of the king, and in the name of all the assembled congregation he cries aloud, O let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. Is not this the universal longing of the whole company of the elect? 
When shall we be delivered from the filthy conversation of these men of Sodom? When shall we escape from the filthiness of Mesek and the blackness of the tents of Kedar? What a solemn and weighty truth is contained in the last sentence of the ninth verse. How deep is the divine knowledge? He trieth. How strict, how accurate, how intimate his search. He trieth the hearts, the secret thoughts and reins, the inward affections. All things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Verse 10. The judge has heard the cause, has cleared the guiltless, and uttered his voice against the persecutors. Let us draw near and learn the results of the great Azazay. Yonder is a slandered one with his harp in hand, hymning the justice of his Lord, and rejoice and allow it in his own deliverance. My defense is of God, which saveth the upright in heart. Oh, how good to have a true and upright heart! Crooked sinners with all their craftiness are foiled by the upright in heart. God defends the right. Filth will not long abide on the pure white garments of the saints, but shall be brushed off by divine providence to the vexation of the men by whose base hands it was thrown upon the godly. When God shall try our cause, our son has risen, and the son of the wicked is set forever. Truth, like oil, is ever above. No power of our enemies can drown it. We shall refute their slanders in the day when the trumpet wakes the dead, and we shall shine in honor when lying lips are put to silence. O believer, fear not all that thy foes can do or say against thee, for the tree which God plants no winds can hurt. Verse 11 God judges the righteous. He has not given thee up to be condemned by the lips of persecutors. Thine enemies cannot sit on God's throne, nor blot thy name out of his book. Let them alone, then, for God will find time for his revenge. God is angry with the wicked every day. He not only detests sin, but is angry with those who continue to indulge in it. We have no insensible and stolid God to deal with. He can be angry. Nay, he is angry today and every day with you, ye ungodly and impenitent sinners. The best day that ever dawns on a sinner brings a curse with it. Sinners may have many feast days, but no safe days. From the beginning of the year even to its ending, there is not an hour in which God's oven is not hot and burning in readiness for the wicked, who shall be as stubble. Verse 12 If he turn not, he will wet his sword. What blows are those which will be dealt by that long uplifted arm. God's sword has been sharpening upon the revolving stone of our daily wickedness. And if we will not repent, it will speedily cut us in pieces. Turn or burn is the sinner's only alternative. He hath bent his bow and made it ready. Verse 13 Even now the thirsty arrow longs to wet itself with the blood of the persecutor. The bow is bent. The aim is taken. The arrow is fitted to the string. And what, O sinner, if the arrow should be let fly? At thee even now. Remember, God's arrows never miss the mark. 
and are every one of them instruments of death. Judgment may tarry, but it will not come too late. The Greek proverb saith, The mill of God grinds late, but grinds to powder. Verse 14 In three graphic pictures, we see this landerer's history. A woman in travel furnishes the first metaphor. He travelleth with iniquity. He is full of it, pained until he can carry it out. He longs to work his will. He is full of pangs until his evil intent is executed. He has conceived mischief. This is the original of his base design. The devil has had doings with him, and the virus of evil is in him. And now behold the progeny of this unhallowed conception. The child is worthy of its father. His name of old was the father of lies, and the birth does not belie the parent. For he brought forth falsehood. Thus one figure is carried out to perfection. The psalmist now illustrates his meaning by another, taken from the stratagems of the hunter. Verse 15. He made a pit and digged it. He was cunning in his plans and industrious in his labors. He stooped to the dirty work of digging. He did not fear to soil his own hands. He was willing to work in a ditch if others might fall therein. What mean things men will do to wreak revenge on the godly? They hunt for good men as if they were brute beasts. Nay, they will not give them the fair chase afforded to the hare or the fox, but must secretly entrap them, because they can neither run them down nor shoot them down. Our enemies will not meet us to the face, for they fear us as much as they pretend to despise us. But let us look on to the end of the scene. The verse says he has fallen into the ditch which he made. Ah, oh, there he is. Let us laugh at his disappointment. Lo, he is himself the beast. He has hunted his own soul, and the chase has brought him a goodly victim. Aha! Aha! So should it ever be. Come hither and make merry with this entrapped hunter, this biter who has bitten himself. Give him no pity, for it will be wasted on such a wretch. He is but rightly and richly rewarded by being paid in his own coin. He cast forth evil from his mouth, and it has fallen into his bosom. He has set his own house on fire with a torch which he lit to burn a neighbor. He sent forth a foul bird, and it has come back to its nest. Verse 16. The rod which he lifted on high has smitten his own back. He shot an arrow upward, and it has returned upon his own head. He hurled a stone at another, and it has come down upon his own pate. Curses are like young chickens. They always come home to roost. Ashes always fly back in the face of him that throws them. As he loved cursing, so let it come unto him. Psalm 109, verse 17. How often has this been the case in the histories of both ancient and modern times? Men have burned their own fingers when they were hoping to brand their neighbor. And if this does not happen now, it will hereafter. The Lord has caused dogs to lick the blood of Ahab in the midst of the vineyard of Naboth. Sooner or later, the evil deeds of persecutors have always leaped back into their arms. So it will be in the last great day, when Satan's fiery darts shall all be quivered in his own heart, and all his followers shall reap the harvest which they themselves have sown. Verse 17 we conclude with a joyful contrast. In this, 
All these psalms are agreed. They all exhibit the blessedness of the righteous and make its colors the more glowing by contrast with the miseries of the wicked. The bright jewel sparkles in a black foil. Praise is the occupation of the godly, their eternal work, and their present pleasure. Singing is a fitting embodiment for praise, and therefore do the saints make melody before the Lord Most High. The slandered one is now a singer. His heart was unstrung for a very little season, and now we leave him sweeping its harmonious chords and flying on their music to the third heaven of adoring praise. The following is explanatory notes and quaint sayings on Psalm 7, verse 11. God is angry with the wicked every day. God is angry. The original expression here is very forcible. The true idea of it appears to be to froth or foam at the mouth with indignation. Richard Mant, 1824. Verses 11 and 12. God has set up his royal standards in defiance of all the sons and daughters of apostate Adam, who from his own mouth are proclaimed rebels and traitors to his crown and dignity. And it's against such he has taken the field, as with fire and sword to be avenged on them. Yea, he gives the world sufficient testimony of his incensed wrath, by that of it which is revealed from heaven daily in the judgments executed upon sinners. And those many, but of a span long, before they can show what nature they have by actual sin, yet crushed to death by God's righteous foot, only for the viperous kind of which they come. At every door where sin sets its foot, there the wrath of God meets us. Every faculty of soul and member of body are used as a weapon of unrighteousness against God. So everyone has his portion of wrath, even to the tip of the tongue. As men is sinful all over, so he is cursed all over. Inside and outside, soul and body, is written all with woes and curses, so close and full that there is not room for another to interline or add to what God has written." End quote. William Gurnall. Verses 11 to 13. The idea of God's righteousness must have possessed great vigor to render such a representation possible. There are some excellent remarks upon the ground of it in Luther, who, however, too much overlooks the fact that the psalmist presents before his eyes as formative of an angry and avenging God primarily with a view of strengthening by its consideration his own hope, and pays too little regard to the distinction between the psalmist, who only indirectly teaches what he described as part of his own inward experience, and the prophet. The prophet takes a lesson from a coarse human similitude, in order that he might inspire terror unto the ungodly. For he speaks against a stupid and hardened people, who would not apprehend the reality of the divine judgment, of which he had just spoken, but that they might possibly be brought to consider this by greater earnestness on the part of man. Now the prophet is not satisfied with thinking of the sword, but adds thereto the bow. Even this does not satisfy him, but he describes how it is already stretched, and aim is taken, and the arrows are applied to it as here follows. So hard, stiff-necked, and unabashed are the ungodly, 
that however many threatenings may be urged against them, they will still remain unmoved. But in these words he forcibly described how God's anger presses hard upon the ungodly, though they will never understand this until they actually experience it. It is also to be remarked here that we have had so frightful a threatening and indignation against the ungodly in no psalm before this, neither has the Spirit of God attacked them with so many words. Then in the following verses he also recounts their plans and purposes, show how these shall not be in vain, but shall return again upon their own head, so that it clearly and manifestly appears that to all those who suffer wrong and reproach, as a matter of consolation that God hates such revilers and slanderers, above all other characters. E. W. Hingstenberg, 1845 Stillwater's Revival Books is now located at PuritanDownloads.com. It's your worldwide online Reformation home for the very best in free and discounted classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, MP3s, and videos. For much more information on the Puritans and Reformers, including the best free and discounted classic and contemporary books, MP3s, digital downloads, and videos, please visit Stillwater's Revival Books at PuritanDownloads.com. Stillwater's Revival Books also publishes the Puritan Hard Drive, the most powerful and practical Christian study tool ever produced. All thanks and glory be to the mercy, grace, and love of the Lord Jesus Christ for this remarkable and wonderful new Christian study tool. The Puritan Hard Drive contains over 12,500 of the best Reformation books, MP3s, and videos ever gathered onto one portable Christian study tool. An extraordinary collection of Puritan, Protestant, Calvinistic, Presbyterian, Covenanter, and Reformed Baptist resources. It's fully upgradable and it's small enough to fit in your pocket. The Puritan hard drive combines an embedded database containing many millions of records with the most amazing and extraordinary custom Christian search and research software ever created. The Puritan hard drive has been produced to assist you in the fascinating and exhilarating spiritual, intellectual, familial, ecclesiastical, and societal adventure that is living the Christian life. It has been specifically designed so that you might more faithfully know, serve, and love the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as to help you to do all you can to bring glory to His great name. If you want to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, then the Puritan hard drive is for you. Visit PuritanDownloads.com today for much more information on the Puritan hard drive and to take advantage of all the free and discounted Reformation and Puritan books, MP3s, and videos that we offer at Stillwater's Revival Books.